Welcome to the Mary's Cup of Tea podcast. I'm your host, Mary Jolkowski. I'm an author, speaker, and all-around self-love advocate. And this is the podcast that'll inspire you to love yourself. Hello, my self-lovers. Before we dive into today's podcast episode, I want to make sure that you're giving yourself the gift of self-love. Now, if you don't know what the gift of self-love is, it's a workbook that will help you build confidence, recognize your worth, and learn to finally love yourself. And it's now available in stores and online worldwide. Oh my goodness, I've been waiting to say that because I've been working on this book for years. I poured my heart and soul into it, compiling everything that I teach at my retreats and putting it into this heartfelt, relatable, and actionable workbook for you. The cool thing is this book is a combination of me sharing my life story and everything that's helped me on this self-love journey, including body acceptance, and it's a workbook that you can actually write in. So every single thing that I share, you can put into practice right away. There are quizzes, journal prompts, self-reflection exercises, self-love challenges, all of which will help you with body image, confidence, self-worth, and self-love. I'm holding it right here. It's right in front of me and it's absolutely gorgeous. Not to toot my own horn or anything, but we've nailed the design on this one. It makes such a wonderful gift both for yourself and for your loved ones. Perhaps you have a friend that could really use this message and that, you know, needs a little push, loving push in the right direction. And I think that this book is just a great gift. Hence, the gift of self-love. So if you haven't gotten it yet, you can get it today by going to maryscupoftea.com slash book. I'm certain that the tools I share in this book will change your life as much as they've changed mine. So again, that's maryscupoftea.com slash book and give yourself the gift of self-love. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Mary's Cup of Tea podcast. Today, I am with my friend, Victoria Myers, who's a dietitian and owner of the virtual private practice and online education center called the Nourishing Minds Nutrition. Victoria and her staff specialize in empowering women to ditch diets, regulate hormones, heal digestion, and learn to practice wellness without obsession. She is also the host of the popular intuitive eating and wellness podcast, the Nourishing Woman podcast, which I had the honor of being on a couple months back. And her mission for her community is to help women let go of the unhealthy obsession with eating healthy, which is exactly what we're going to talk about today, make peace with their body and live their lives to the fullest. Victoria, welcome to the show. Mary, thank you so much for having me. I cannot tell you how much of an honor it is to be here with you right now. Oh, thank you. Likewise, I loved our episode together. I still get messages till this day of people reaching out because of that podcast episode. And I got off that call and I, I told my boyfriend, I was like, she's just so sweet. I wish she was closer <laughs> so we can actually hang out. The feeling is mutual. It's like, I mean, I do interviews. I'm sim- I'm sure you do too. I do them all the time. And rarely do I get off one and have like actual goosebumps left. And mm-hmm. I was like, damn, I want to be her friend. <laughs> well, we're officially friends. You heard it here on the Love show. <laughs> we are marking this moment in history. Um, before we like begin talking about our topic, which is orthorexia, the unhealthy obsession with eating healthy, which I know you and I both experienced. I'm wondering like, how are you doing? Like in your personal, like today, it's Friday, May 7th. 
Friday, May 7th. But I was yeah. telling you before we hit record, in this exact moment, I'm tired. But overall, I'm doing well. I feel like my life in general, I think as sure as everyone's does during a pandemic, and I'm also a mom and business owner. I feel like it's like it depends on what day you ask me, to be honest with you. Like there's highs and there's lows. And overall, I feel like I'm in a really good place with life, which I don't know if a couple years ago, I could have said that just for a di- bunch of different reasons. But I feel really centered and like I'm actually on the right path, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And that feels very grounding because for a while, it didn't feel that way. It felt like everything, like I was running with a chicken with my head cut off. I've been like, Hyper vigilant. That's not a fair word to use because I don't like anything obsessive, but for <laughs> for lack of a better term, I've been so thoughtful lately to be really into self care and just really putting myself first, which is not always something I've done. So I think because of that, I'm actually like feeling okay. Again, depends on what day you ask me, but feeling good in this season of life. How are you? Same for me, it like depends on what minute of the day you ask me. <laughs> That's how moody I am. Oh my God. Can I just tell you a little side note about being moody? I like obnoxiously yell in the house like all the time because I'm. <laughs> Do you really? I, yeah, all the time. I don't know. And I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to be as a parent or what my kids are going to be like because I like, you know, I sweet talk to the dog or I'll just yell random things. Anyways, one of the things that I yell <laughs> is why be moody when you can shake your booty? And I say it in an accent and all the time, right? So boyfriend is so sick of it. He's so fucking sick of my shit. And one day he just like kind of lost it. He's like, you know, somebody who says that all the time, you're still pretty moody. (laughs) For someone who shakes their booty, you're very moody. That's what he said. Anyways, um, yeah, I feel that. But I think I'm also in a pretty good place right now just because of the toolbox. Like I know what to Mm. access when I need it. So I'm wondering, you said you were running around like a chicken with your head cut off, which is my favorite visual. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Is this when you were like becoming a dietitian and building your practice? And if so, like, what was that path like for you? How did you get into it? And do you have like a personal connection to this work? To becoming a dietitian? Yeah. Oh, for sure. I do. So how far back do you want me to take it? As far as you want. Whatever resonates. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, it's extremely personal and I think it's honestly a pretty similar story. I don't know if most people realize this about dietitians, but most of us tend to get in this profession because we want to like fix ourselves or fix our bodies. That was definitely true for me. So I remember never really, I never liked my body. I never was okay in it. I never felt comfortable in it. But at the age of 16, like I vividly remember doing my first diet ever. I did it with my mom, which is, you know, an interesting thing to look back on now realize. And then from there, it probably was a pretty quick spiral as I look back of like, pretty quickly becoming disordered behaviors. And it ebbed and flowed throughout college. And being a nutrition major, I just felt like I needed to act and look the part of a nutrition major. And then that got so much worse when I became a registered dietitian. So I did my schooling, became a registered dietitian, moved to Florida. For the time, it was like my husband, then boyfriend's job moved us down to Florida. I'm originally from North Carolina, did school in South Carolina. 
And it just, it, like I said, it spiraled even more. It was like, okay, well, now I'm a dietitian. Now I need to eat perfectly and exercise perfectly. And I need everyone to think I do all these things right. And I became really obsessive. That term that we're going to talk about today, orthorexia, that was me to a T. Like I was always worried. It shape sifted quite a bit. Sometimes it was calories, sometimes it was macros, sometimes it was paleo, intermittent fasting, gluten-free. Like it would change often, which is a pretty common theme with orthorexia. But it was always just this desire to look and act perfect and have the perfect diet and eat as healthy as possible. But I got engaged and then got married. And the whole year leading up to my wedding, I was probably more restricted than I had been in a really long time because I had that bride pressure. But I had this wonderful thing happen that I hit a breaking point when I came back from my honeymoon. And I was like, I just can't live like this anymore because I I essentially binged ate the entire honeymoon. It's really all the memories I have so sadly about our honeymoon, not the time with my husband, not all these wonderful things that could have happened. I remember binge eating, but I'm so grateful because what happened was that breaking point led me to discovering intuitive eating. I wish I could remember what blog it was that I first read about it on. If I could remember, I would like give them credit, but I read about it on a blog, went and found everything I could about it and really immersed myself for a while in that work on my own in a personal way, I was actually working. Funny enough, I did WIC work first, which is breastfeeding and infant care. And then I did weight management, crazy enough. And I was going through my own journey at that time. And then I actually left that career about five years ago and started my own private practice, Nourishing Minds Nutrition. At this point, orthorexia is like hands down what we do the most. So we help people with Hormone issues like hypothalamic amenorrhea, we have IBS, and all those things are because someone with orthorexia typically has those kind of things going on. So, like I said, I'm just I'm grateful, as crazy as that is. I wonder if you kind of feel the same way about your own personal journey because it led me to like the path. I am so passionate about this work. Like it is a gift to wake up every day and feel this passionate. I will never take that for granted. And um, I'm grateful that I have my own personal experiences because I think it allows me to feel a lot more relatable and connected to my people because I remember how vividly how that felt to to not like my body, to always be worried about what I was eating, to feel as if I always had to exercise off everything that I ate. I just remember what that felt like. And I also know that there is another side and there is another way you can take care of yourself. And that's really the, you know, the, the cornerstone of why we started Nourishing Minds Nutrition and where we are today with all of that. Wow. Yeah. I, I definitely resonate with that. Just the gratitude. Sometimes I'm like, what is the alternative? Like, where would I be if I never took a sharp turn the other way? I mean, I would probably still be working at like a weight loss clinic, hating my life. I hated that work so much. Oh my gosh. I cannot tell you how much I hated that. And uh, just but still playing small. That's always the word that comes to mind. I just felt like it, was, it wasn't just with food and exercise. It was playing small in every part of my life possible. I wasn't using my voice. I wasn't taking care of myself. I was literally like trying to be as small as possible. It really manifested itself in a lot of different ways. Yeah. And that's the thing, like the word small, it's like we try to, it's like physical and metaphorical. Like you can really see how those connect. Mm -hmm. Do you find that like a lot of people in your industry, are there a lot more intuitive eating slash non-diet dietitians around now than when you were starting? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I've been a dietitian for a while now. So I've been in this career for 
10 years. I always forget the exact number. That's kind of sad. I think it's 10 years. And yeah, when I was like first a dietitian, like when I was doing the, you have to do a dietetic internship to become a registered dietitian. Uh, now it's combined with a master's, but it wasn't back in the day when I was doing it. Anyways, literally had never heard the terms intuitive eating, health at every size, never once talked about. I was actually just talking with another fellow dietitian earlier today, and we were sharing how like eating disorders was not even a thing really in our internship. I think I had two days on it, if that. Now it is so different, right? And even I'd say in the past five or so years, it's really exploded. I think what I am the most excited about the changes are is that it's not just a bunch of dietitians doing eating disorder recovery work. It's a lot of dietitians like myself where we actually specialize in disordered eating, orthorexia on that side of the spectrum before it becomes an active eating disorder. So in my clinical work, because we are a virtual practice, we're not doing active eating disorder work. We're like at that spectrum before it gets to that level. And that kind of stuff especially didn't exist five, 10 years ago. Yeah, it's like the epitome of preventative. Exactly, right? Because what we know is if you continue in these behaviors, that's how it becomes. So if there's restriction for long enough or weight continues to be lost, that's how it becomes that level of an active eating disorder. So, I mean, obviously there's more to it than just that, but continuing down that path is what will lead towards that. It's so important that we stop it. So any level of healing is so important, but if we can get to it before it gets there, that's incredible. Yeah. So on on that note, like what is orthorexia? You already mentioned it a few times and I'm sure most of our listeners know, but for those who don't, what is it? Like what are the signs of it? And more in particular, because this is obviously what you specialize in, have you like any any personal experiences with it in a sense, like any personality traits or who do you think is like susceptible to developing orthorexia or who may have it that doesn't know it kind of the the nitty-gritty is what you see in your practice I love this question so much because I think all those things really play into each other okay so if you're you've heard of orthorexia this will be a fun recap if you're new to it this will be really important information to know because orthorexia I'm gonna be honest this is how most eating disorders present these days and it's the unhealthy obsession with eating healthy so what that means because there's nothing wrong with wanting to take care of yourself. There's nothing wrong with eating healthy. Orthorexia, completely different thing. And what I mean by that is that there's mental health issues at play. You ask like what type of people is it commonly? It's people who struggle with anxiety and depression can be more prone. There's actually studies that show like OCD is is pretty tied to orthorexia. Not for all people. I personally have never had or experienced that, but I had orthorexia, but it is pretty common overarching though, I just say type A personalities, perfectionist, people pleasers, people who are so concerned with doing everything right. So on my podcast, we talk all the time about perfectionism because I think that to me is really the core issue with orthorexia. And that's how it manifests with orthorexia with a healthy eating component, but it manifests in a lot of different areas, right? With maybe wanting to have the perfect homework assignment or the perfect grades or be the best employee possible. Or if you own your own business, like for me, for the first little bit of it, I was always just trying to do everything right and everything perfectly and be that perfect version of everything for everyone else. So all to be said, I think those are really common tendencies for people with orthorexia. And then if you're looking for signs and symptoms, it can show up in a lot of different ways. But I think the biggest things that always come to mind for me is like, the biggest thing I'd say is like, if you have anxiety, stress, or worry about what you're eating, that's an indicator something is off, something to reflect on, something might be going on there because food 
even if you have a medical condition or if you have a need to take food out of your diet, it shouldn't cause anxiety, stress, and worry. So if we got a little bit more specific, orthorexia can show up. So a great example of this would be like you always stick to your exercise routine and you never fall off of it. Like you always go, even if you're tired, even if you're injured, that's a big one. I see people will be literally injured and still exercising, cannot take a rest day or cannot take a non-planned rest day with food. I feel like what's really common these days is taking out a lot of foods because there's all these doctors telling you to, or food blogs or influencers saying all these foods that they don't eat, you know, it's more than just gluten and dairy these days or Although those are pretty common, it's, you know, don't eat grains, don't eat this. Don't, I mean, it, the list truly could go on. I mean, I, I can't tell you how common it is to see people come to me like with five to 10 foods that they're eating at that point. It can be other ways. So we share that, like for me, it would often shape shift. So it could be that you're just, you know, excessively counting calories. So what that means is like you're always tracking it in my fitness pal. You plan it to a T with what you're going to eat. And then you're going back and tracking and making sure it's, it hit the numbers exactly as you had planned for that day. Planning is just like a really big thing in general with orthorexia. There tends to be a lot of time spent like writing out what you're going to eat, how you're going to eat it, food prepping, meal planning, making sure everything again is hit exactly as you had planned. And if it doesn't hit as planned, there's anxiety, there's stress, there's shame, there's guilt. So there's like a lot of, I feel like emotional turbulence tied up in the decisions you make around food. I think the biggest thing that comes to mind to me is the inability to be flexible. So someone with orthorexia, like couldn't, like, let's say that they are someone, they took all their food with them to work. And if their coworkers were going to go get happy hour, they would be so anxious about that, or they'd have a hard time going, they probably would say no, or maybe they are taking food with them to social gatherings and stuff like that. And again, there's obviously going to be caveats. Sometimes some people have true medical allergies and have to take you know, food allergies. They have to take their own food. But if you're doing it without like true medical necessity, that's something to think about. And that could be a sign of that. The other thing I always like to mention is like just obsessive tracking of nutrition labels and checking the ingredient list. And I mentioned OCD earlier. Sometimes there's like a compulsion with it. Like you keep checking it, making sure it doesn't have this ingredient or making sure it only has these specific things that you're allowed to eat. So overall, there's perfectionism, there's hypervigilance, there's obsessiveness, and there's just this layer of always trying to do things right with food. Mm, That was literally me. I used to pre-populate my food into my fitness pal weeks in advance. I don't mean like plan for tomorrow. I mean like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Like what? Because I would carb cycle and then this would all need to, and I need to see the average and like. And you needed it to plan it out, right? Mm -hmm. And like what happens when you're more hungry that particular day? Or if again, a spontaneous event happens or you just don't want to follow it, right? And then that's when like the shame and the guilt and all these like emotions get tied up into it. Yeah, yeah. And I even found that in recovery, I almost developed orthorexic tendencies. It's one of those things that just, you, you kind of bounce. You bounce for a while, you know? You like binge eating, mm-hmm. and there's like restriction, then there's orthorexia. Like I was bouncing for a real, real long time. I guess some people call it pseudo recovery. I was about to say that. Yeah. I think when there is something more like anorexia or bulimia going on, although there's so many different ways eating disorders present. Sometimes I don't even like to mention this. I'm like, that doesn't even encapsulate like all the ways eating disorders present themselves. But let's say those sometimes like orthorexia is like the version of pseudo recovery for that person. It's like, okay, well, at least I'm eating, but this is all that I'm allowed to eat. 
I was going to bring that up because I saw that a lot of recovery blogs, like a lot of, you know, the early recovery people are following that I do not recommend now. But first of all, they were like big vegan food bloggers or they were like big into fitness and they'd the narrative they would tell themselves and tell their audiences are like, fitness saved my life and fitness helped me recover from my eating disorder. And now that I'm tracking, I don't have to starve. Yeah. Oh, that's such a big one. And I think it, what you're is so helpful to hear that because as we're showcasing it, like shows up in different ways too. So the vegan community, like I see that a lot. Again, different than like choosing it for ethical or environmental reasons. Like this is different than orthorexia. Another thing is, because I know this was you, Mary, is bodybuilding, right? So like this whole like reverse dieting, but I'm still going to shrink train numerous times a week for, you know, X amount of minutes per day. So it's still like being so specific about how you're exercising and eating, even though it is more calories maybe, but it's still so specific about like what you're allowed to do. Yeah. And I think that builds up a lot of frustration for me personally, because I would be like, you know, the the one idea that I found that later ended up saving my life, but it was about how restriction is still restriction, even if you're like eating whatever thousand calories a day that's recommended. Even if you're like, oh, I'm eating enough. Why am I still binge eating? That's the story that I had for so long. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I realized that a lot of the restriction was emotional or maybe I'm not actually eating as much as I think, but it's so hard when it comes to like orthorexia because we're taught these certain rules and we all have our own numbers, whether it's a number on the scale or the number of calories or the grams of carbs or minutes on the treadmill, like we're all attached to a particular number. And once it goes over that threshold, like we freak out and we're like, oh my God, you know? Absolutely. And then I think that's also part of the problem is that it is so praised and like such a highly priced thing in our society. Like I'm sure everyone listening is that person who's like super healthy and fit and like everyone idolizes them. So it's sad because they could, similar to you and me, Mary, could very likely be struggling with disordered eating or an eating disorder like orthorexia and no one has said anything, right? Like no one really knows the true reasons that they are, you know, that healthy one um, is how I often describe this, like having that identity, you know, it's tough because then people begin to expect that of you. Like I remember when I was like shifting out of that into intuitive eating, people would question like, oh, you're going to eat this now? Or like, look at Victoria eating that. And, you know, I'm grateful that for me, it never got super intense. I think because I do this for a living, people started to realize real quickly, like, you know, that probably isn't appropriate to say to me because I actually would share about it on a blog. But at the same time, I think it just, it just is sad because it is so praised. And then also what's sad is because it's not in statistic and diagnostic manual, people think that means it's not real or it's made up or there's nothing wrong with eating healthy. I've had so many commenters on Instagram say that I've also had clients like legitimately have doctors tell them that before. And it's so disappointing. Yeah, it is. And like you brought up with dietetics, you know, back in the day that just the lack of education, you'd think our medical professionals or people that deal with our eating would be like a little more educated on it and also like conscientious of it as they're speaking. And it is really frustrating. Also on that note, speaking of like health, I'm sure you have lots of thoughts on this, but what do you do when a client comes to you and they're like, I'm legit like having explosive diarrhea every day. I think I'm gluten intolerant or I don't know, the dairy makes like, cause I know there are certain things with me even that I'm like, hmm, maybe like something I ate is just like making me feel off, but I'm, I get nervous to like go down that slippery slope of trying to diagnose what it is because I'm so scared of 
not even scared. I know for a fact that I'm going to go and find blogs that are going to tell me to cut out food groups or do this or do that. And that will probably end up making me more intolerant, more sensitive, just like what happened when I was quitting bodybuilding is that I literally was allergic to like everything. I had like vitamin B levels where my my doctors are like, what what is wrong with you? My blood, like everything. And I historically have like low blood pressure. So I have to be extra conscientious about it. But thyroid, like everything that you could possibly think of in terms of like hormonal and like food sensitivity stuff like I dealt with. And it's like, okay, I never had allergies growing up. I'm the only person I know that is not allergic to anything. And then suddenly I'm allergic to everything, not allergic, but they say quote unquote sensitive, right? So like, what do you say when people are trying to like figure out that even when it's something like more, I don't know, PCOS, I get a lot. A lot of people are like, I've been diagnosed with PCOS and my doctor keeps telling me to just lose weight and not eat sugar and it's stressing me out. I love these questions. I'm so glad you're digging in because this is definitely, I feel like the more nuanced areas of specifically to orthorexia and then just intuitive eating in general too. So we can take apart IBS and then come back to PCOS. If I forget about PCOS though, remind me. (laughs) So with IBS, it definitely is tricky. And I say that because to begin with, it is very common if you have an eating disorder to have symptoms, to have like digestive disturbance as you are recovering. And the reasons for that typically are because it's really common to develop gastroparesis, which means delayed gastric motility. So like basically you can think of it like this, like when the body isn't getting what it needs, it starts to shut down pathways that it uses non-essential to survival. Think like your heart beating, your lungs breathing, that kind of stuff is like vital. Your reproductive health, your digestive health, not as essential to survival. So it starts to shut things down and that's how gastroparesis can develop. So again, coming back to why it's tricky is because a lot of times people do have symptoms as they eat more. And it's both because their body needs to just learn to deal with that amount of frequency of food again. And also because they need to get, you know, maybe for that person weight restored, or maybe just eating adequate calorie consumption, and then the body will start to process the food again. So sometimes it's just knowing that like that person needs to do that. Sometimes it's a little bit more complicated and we're like, okay, well, this looks like this could be SIBO, which is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Typically that's like someone has symptoms that are Kate Scarletta. She's a wonderful dietitian in this arena. She, she describes them as IBS on steroids. So when someone has such intense symptoms, we're like, okay, well, maybe you need to get a breath test and do antibiotics if it comes back positive and also focus on your recovery. And then some people, it just looks like it could be a little bit of recovery, a little bit of IBS. And for those people, sometimes we do use a low FODMAP approach. That's like an evidence-based diet that can help alleviate symptoms if someone has IBS. Sometimes we're looking at like, okay, could it be gluten? Although I will say wheat and dairy are both types of FODMAP. So that's oftentimes how they cause people's symptoms. And then I will say for all those cases, a lot of times we're using supplements to help them manage their symptoms as we're either focusing on recovery, recovery and or medical diet while doing that, or something like a little bit more intense where they're, they have actually something, an overgrowth bacteria going on and they're doing an antibiotic treatment from their doctor while they're also working with us in recovery. So all to be said, I think that's why it's so important to work with an individualized caretaker so they can like help you decipher because like, let's say I have someone who comes to me and they're just so anxious about everything and they're like so anxious about what they're eating. They have symptoms. A lot of times I'm like, okay, well, it could be those other things that we need to do, but we have to remove your anxiety around food because that's going to exacerbate 
everything else that you're experiencing. And then sometimes I'm like, your symptoms are so bad. We need to immediately jump into this while we also aid in this specific, you know, recovery with orthorexia that we're working on. So it's so different for every person. I would say like, if you are someone who has digestive issues, giving you a hug because I had terrible IBS for a decade of my life. And I, you know, it was, it was not fun. It was also very tied up for me as it is for many in my disordered eating patterns, you know, restrict and binge eating and all these different things that cause symptoms. Overall, though, I'd say is I don't believe in food sensitivity testing. And I rarely think it's actually food sensitivities outside of those things that are evidence-based like low FODMAP. Occasionally, it can be gluten, stuff like that. And then for PCOS, PCOS is, is hard as well because it's common in the PCOS community. From what I've learned, I do not personally have PCOS, but for people who have PCOS, they have a lot of carb cravings related to their insulin resistance. So they still need to practice intuitive eating. They still 100% deserve to practice intuitive eating. But what they will need to do is, you know, work on gentle nutrition practices while they're practicing intuitive eating. So sometimes with orthorexia, and again, it depends on the person, the case and the situation. Sometimes with orthorexia, we're waiting to apply the very final principle to the very bitter end because they're so fixated on healthy eating. And then for other people, like I said, with PCOS, it actually may be appropriate to apply some gentle nutrition practices while they're learning to make peace with food and reject diet mentality. And that shouldn't negate or take away from those things. It should just be complementary. So like an example would be omega-3 fatty acids can be really beneficial for someone with PCOS because they help reduce inflammation, eating carbohydrates, but we don't in our practice, at least we do not eliminate them. We do not demonize them. We just make sure that they're eaten with protein and fat. So that just would be a couple examples of like how you can practice gentle nutrition, but in a non-diet mentality for PCOS. Mm, that's so good. Okay. Let me, I want to pick apart a couple things. So yes, firstly, just my heart, you're right. My heart goes out to anybody who's trying to navigate this because it's so difficult, but like, mm-hmm. I don't know about our listeners but I felt like so much peace just listening to you that there's options. And what I really got from that is, you know, with the, especially with the IBS thing, it's like most people generally fall into two groups, either a, a lot of these digestive health concerns are related to how much you've been depriving your body. And like, Mm. it's going to be a little bit of a learning curve for, like you said, your digestive system to create those new those pathways to like almost rebuild Mm -hmm. them or B, if you've done that and there's still stuff going on, then there's actually medical approaches that we can take where we will run tests and diagnose and actually, you know, the, you you mentioned an antibiotic, right? Like it's very specific and generally most people fall in one of those two groups and you will get down to the bottom of it. It's just going to take time. Exactly, exactly. And try as best as possible to not, because another common thing with orthorexia is to want to research things so much and to like spend hours on blogs and articles. I think that's like the worst thing you could do as someone with orthorexia because you already have those tendencies to be obsessive and compulsive with that. And you're just going to find a million articles that tell you a million different things to do. And what can be common is to take like take all these different pieces. So you end up being that person who's like avoiding all things and all foods because you read this article that told you to do this and this article that told you to do that. And I, you know, I love blogs. I think they're so beneficial, but at the same time, like if it's not 
it gets, it gets concerning when it comes to digestion, because like, it is so, it's so hard to like, say for sure, like this one thing causes this one outcome. So like this, I like, sometimes I'm like wishy-washy with my answers. Cause I'm like, it's not very, I mean, it's so individualized. So all to be said, like try to avoid researching as much as you can and just go find someone if possible for you, for someone you can work with. Yeah. It's like the, don't go on WebMD. <laughs> the number one thing they tell you. I'm actually like on a bigger picture. I'm practicing that in my life. And I, I released an episode a couple of weeks ago, you know, talking about the difference between therapy, coaching, and self-healing. And one thing that I recommend is if you're just on a journey of any kind, like find your select one or two people that you follow online and just like stick with them for a little bit. Like use their resources, listen to them, watch their videos, their podcasts, like, like stick with one or two people max instead of trying to like constantly search for the next big thing or or the next best thing or the next person or taking advice from everyone. And I think that applies to like, like even with business growth, I'm like, I do not listen to business podcasts. There's only two people that I go to that I have either worked with personally or I just follow them online, but I actually deep dive because yeah, like they're, it's just such a great thing to practice. Like don't, spread yourself thin and try to take everyone's advice because it's just going to make things worse. Yeah. And no one's right or wrong, right? Like everyone has just their different expertise and their different growth strategies. Like same with business. I have two people <laughs> that I go to for my advice. And right now I don't take on anything else because then it's it's not that again, those people have wrong advice. It's just, they have a different area of expertise. And that'd be so overwhelming to try to do that where, while I'm also like very focused on these two areas. So I couldn't agree more. And you can definitely apply that to your health journey. I even think of the non-diet space. I know that might be a little like controversial to say that, but I follow so many. I think it's incredible how many of their, I mean, there's dietitians, there's coaches, there's influencers, there's so many of us out there. And I'm so grateful for that. But don't like, like the moment you start to feel overwhelmed or comparison or judgment, that's how you know to pull back. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with it in the non-diet space too. Like have your select few people that you just, you stick with and stick with them for a little bit and then see if you need to pivot. Because otherwise you're, you're taking nothing from anybody. You're just kind of all over the place. Is recovery from orthorexia I can imagine it's a bit different than recovery from other type of eating disorders because you're not undergoing like stereotypical treatment. Although there's dietitians and treatment from like anorexia and bulimia and stuff. But I also can imagine that it's hard to find that boundary between eating healthy because you feel like you have to, right? Or like because you're afraid to not or, you know, having a salad because that's what really what your body craves. So what does that process look like? How long do you typically work with clients? Like, do you have any tips that people can implement right away if they're listening and they're like, yeah, this is me? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I love all of these questions. And I would say, typically, we work with clients around six months. That's our usual go-to. We work in package lengths of three and six months, but the almost always ends up being six months. And because I mentioned this early, but we're a virtual private practice, which means we can see anybody in the US. But because of that, we take very specific people, right? You're a disordered eater and you are working, to, you are ready and working towards intuitive eating, right? So you have to be ready. And also usually doing that on its own or in conjunction with something like HA, which is hypothalamic amenorrhea when you lose your period from diet and exercise, PCOS, IBS, SIBO, something like that. So as far as like what 
what that process looks like. I mean, we're I'm a certified intuitive eating counselor. So I use those those principles. And I think a lot of times people like try to go one through 10 and try to like nail the first one and then go to the next one. But honestly, we jump around. So I always say like, it's just different depending on like what that person's struggling with the most. So let's say they come in and they're struggling pretty significantly with hunger and fullness cues and unable to access them. Then we would jump immediately into that. Sometimes it is like, here's the workbook, we're going to work through this and talk about it together. And then sometimes it's like our own tools that we use and just a lot of conversation and coaching. So I feel like we're always a mixture. And most dietitians are probably this way, like we're a mixture of like counseling and coaching. So it's, you know, walking through why we have lost, like let's keep using hunger and fullness as an example, why we have lost the ability to listen to our hunger and fullness, what past experiences, dieting, what was our dynamic like in our household growing up around food. So we talk about that and we talk about like how we actually feel in this present moment around again, hunger and fullness, if we keep using that and then how then to change that and work towards being able to connect to the body and feel those interoceptive cues like hunger and fullness. Obviously there's more principles than just hunger and fullness, but it's kind of a piece of like what it would look like. I would say if someone's like new to this work and you are looking to begin to heal your orthorexia journey, I mean, again, it depends on where you are in the spectrum. You can have just orthorexic tendencies. You can have orthorexia present as disordered eating, or you can have orthorexia present as an active eating disorder in conjunction with something like anorexia or bulimia. So I think if it's that, you do want to find someone local to support you. And like I said, we typically work with people for about six months. And if I'm thinking of like one thing someone could do to like start that journey today, the advice I always like to say, if you care about health, number one, like health doesn't have to be a value. That's totally fine if it's not of yours. I find for a lot of my community, because we talk about this concept of wellness without obsession, for my community, they just tend to really love health and they tend to love wellness, which I always try to showcase like there's nothing wrong with that. We're just doing it without dogma, without restriction, without obsession, right? So a question I always like to tell people to ask themselves is, is your actions and and intentions about self-care or is it self-control? And you can literally like as you're participating in an a habit, a behavior, a thought process, literally sit and ask yourself. I think internal dialogue is like the best tool of intuitive eating work. So much of this is not just changing your actions, but actually like analyzing your thought patterns. It's such a big part of this work. So again, like as you're doing different things, like, hey, like, am I trying to exercise today because like I want to take care of myself or because I want to compensate for a behavior or because I feel uncomfortable in my body or because I need to burn calories? Like two different things that versus no, that would feel so good to move today. Like I love this specific exercise that I do. And I, I just feel like that would like help me debrief after a long day of work, like two very different things there. So again, if someone is like new to it, just start there. Just start asking yourself self-care versus self-control. That is so good. I'd love that. I'm going to use that. And it's so simple, right? And I still to this day, years, I think I've been practicing intuitive eating now for like seven years, seven years. I still will be like, Hey, Victoria, Are you doing this because of self-care or self-control? Yeah, no, that is really, really, really good. I really like that. It is so simple. That's what I love the most is because the simplicity makes it doable. Exactly. And that's all about how you form new habits, right? It needs to be super, super simple to do that. Yeah. So self-care or self-control. Yeah. Okay, now I'm going to like flash forward. So that's somebody who's just starting out. What if you're like, you know, the things you've been doing the things (laughs) and you're at a place where you like health and wellness Mm -hmm. and you, I don't know, you have certain health and wellness goals. You mentioned gentle nutrition. I Mm -hmm. would love for you to dive into that because it's something that, I mean, I, I enjoy wellness too, 
And I think the biggest misconception is that for some reason I don't, but I think that a lot of people in like the body positive community actually more than average (laughs) enjoy wellness. Again, it doesn't have to be everyone and it's not like a moral obligation, but if you are into that, like what is gentle nutrition and how, how can we practice that? Oh man. I mean, it can be so many different things. That's what's cool to me about nutrition. And just like a quick side note, people think intuitive eating is anti-nutrition and anti-health. It's like exactly the opposite. It's pro-health. It's like a health promoting framework. It is like nutrition is in the principles of it. So it's definitely about nutrition. It's just coming from a non-diet mentality. And again, it's focusing on the behaviors, not weight loss is like what we're trying to achieve here. So just wanted to mention that because people get really sidetracked by that. They're like, wait, what? You can talk about nutrition or even wellness. I would agree. I think people like think we don't like wellness. I'm like, girl, I like, I do wellness all day. Like that's, (laughs) that's my thing. If you like my husband goes fishing, I go do wellness. (laughs) Yeah. We drink the matcha green tea lattes and hit a yoga class. Like that's that's my go-to. And then I will also (laughs) be drinking a margarita later that day and eating nachos. It's both and in my life. And that to me is like so encompassing of wellness without obsession is I love all the wellnessy things. I love massages and acupuncture. I love adaptogens and matcha lattes. I love yoga. And I try to meditate, although I'm terrible about it. But you know, everyone is too at the same time anyways. But I also am like, gonna drink margarita with you. I'm gonna eat the nachos. I'm gonna have fun. I mean, I'm a mom, so I don't really go out anymore. But I still like to enjoy my life is what I'm saying. And that to me is like, that's really the philosophy of wellness without obsession is living your life and enjoying your life. And wellness just helps us live a more meaningful life. It helps us feel well in our bodies so we can go do all the things we want to do in our lives. So that's wellness without obsession. But gentle nutrition, like I said, is a 10th and final principle of intuitive eating. And it really can be, I mean, it can be a vast array of different things that you're looking at here. But if you want to just think of like some simple basics, one of the things I always like to say is in the book, they talk about authentic health. And really what that means is creating authentic health in your life means you're putting your inner compass with external health values from valid sources of nutrition. So you can definitely think about external things and think about like, hey, like, do I want to eat more fruits and vegetables or go to a local farmer's market to support, you know, my local economy and reducing plastic use? You can think about all those kind of things. But that's, again, self-care versus self-control. You're not doing it because it's like, oh my God, I have to hit this amount of calories and macros and all of that stuff. Another thing I think it's fun to think about outside of authentic health that I love to talk about is body food congruence. So like how food feels in your body. That's really hard if you've been disconnected from your body from a really long time. But over time, the goal with intuitive eating is it will teach you how to listen to your body. So y'all, when you hear people say things like, oh, I felt like eating a salad today, or I really wanted that cookie, or you hear people saying just like that they're listening to their body to assess like what food they want, that's body food congruence and like determining how foods make you feel over time. And it could even include you were sharing earlier about like trying to figure out Like, are these foods causing me digestive distress? It can definitely include stuff like that. It could include the PCOS conversation that we are having too. Lastly, I'll share because I'm actually going to record a podcast this weekend about this. So it's just on my mind is a concept of nutrition hierarchy. So like kind of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it comes from uh, Rachel Hartley's book, Gentle Nutrition. So I want to make sure to give credit where credit is due. But as she talks about like, you know, similar to Maslow's hierarchy of need, we can have a nutrition hierarchy. So making sure we first get enough food, so adequate food, and then balance 
variety. And then at the very top is individual food. So if you love the matcha lattes, or if you love adaptogens, or if you love turmeric milk, oak lattes, you know, that kind of stuff is great, but it's the individual food. So not saying that they don't matter, but like what's most important is that you're eating enough and that you're getting a balance of all foods. So carbs, protein, and fats, macro nutrients do matter, but not in the sense of like, you need to count your macros, just more in like a sense of, are you eating adequate of all food groups and all foods and all macros throughout the day? So those are just some ideas to get people started. Nutrition hierarchy, authentic health and body food congruence. Mm, There are a couple of things I want to pick apart. Firstly, the, you said those foods are at the very top. You mean like those foods are at the very top of the pyramid, meaning they have the like least amount of area. They're kind of like the cherry on top, but we need to make sure we address the big things at the bottom of the period first before, you know, being like, oh, this matcha green tea latte is going to be like the cure to all my problems. Like that, I would even put, yeah, yeah, I would even put like how you said Rachel Hartley Nutrition was the book. We'll put it in the show notes in case people are interested. But even in that bottom bracket, I don't know if there could be like the dirt underneath the pyramid, but that could be the stuff that you mentioned, which I love like you were talking about like how health can also be like being very conscientious of like your community and like where you're contributing to or even like like drinking water and like getting sleep like all of those things are like the soil like of the pyramid and we bypass those and we quickly go to that top and we're going to be like oh this one magic supplement or this one magic latte i don't know <laughs> we're picking on matcha green tea lattes <laughs> I'm picking on them, but I love them, y'all. I love them. (laughs) But exactly. And it's like, okay, well, that's so fun to eat. But is that really like, if we were talking about health conditions, like those foundational things, the dirt and soil that we're talking about and that baseline, that foundation, those are the things that like, I guess because they're not sexy to talk about, those are the things like everybody skips. Like everyone wants to go to the top and be like, okay, is this one food causing all your symptoms? And or like add this one thing into your diet. It's going to fix all your life's problems. Can we like use celery juice as an example of that, right? And if you like celery juice, do your thing, girl. But like, I'm just saying like, we can't like, if that's all we're focused on, we don't have the foundation. It's really hard for even I'd say like, there are so much beautiful nutrition qualities found in so many different foods, but it's even hard for those things to do their job if we're not doing the foundational needs of like eating enough. Yeah. And I don't mean to be cynical about it, but the reason, like you said, it's not sexy. And I would say the reason is because you can't really commodify those things. Mm-hmm. I mean, like you can't really sell a diet plan on drinking your water. <laughs> you know, and getting I mean, enough sleep. Yeah. And, I will and- say like hydro jug and uh, my thermal flask has done a really great job of selling me the importance of drinking water. <laughs> but yeah, I love it. getting enough sleep, like things like that, like they're not as, as sexy for, for marketing and stuff. And so I would say that that's why so many people gravitate towards like that magic pill or the magic diet or the, mm-hmm. the magic drink. (laughs) Or even something like as simple as like listen to your hunger and fullness cues, which I will say like intuitive eating is not the hunger and fullness diet is not meant to be used like this. The only time you're approved and allowed to eat is not that. However, like again, talking about sexiness, telling someone to eat when they're hungry and stop when they're full isn't like that sexy. But like, that's also like the basics of nutrition and eating well is doing things like that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I find that I've been able to you know, be in a balance of it. And boyfriend and I are just like really, really good about it. I don't know. We're both, we both are very lucky that we grew up in a culture that like loves eating. And so for us, it's like every meal is like 
a meal. Like we don't do the whole like eat on the go kind of thing. It's not really a part of our culture. So it's, yeah, it's really nice that way. But, you know, I've noticed that like if his mom sends over a dish that's like meat and potatoes and it's missing a salad, like he'll go and he'll just like cut up a salad because we feel that that's important. And so anyways, that's been all great and fun. And I love when my sister is over because we can further like reinforce that. And so I'm wondering how you approach that with your daughter. Your daughter's almost Mm -hmm. two, Maddie. (laughs) She's so sweet. And I know that it may seem like she's a little too young, but I'm sure you've found ways to like instill wellness without obsession with her. And if you have any tips for like parents or caretakers to teach their children this idea of like balanced health and gentle nutrition without making it into diet or about their body or demonizing foods. I love that you're asking me this so much because it's not something I get to like really talk about all that much. So yes, it's very instilled in her. I mean, she has a mother that does like intuitive eating and body image work for a living. (laughs) It is very much a part of our lives. Like every book she has is a feminist book. I talk to her all the time about body autonomy. Like we have these like conversations from the get go. So part of what I did to establish that from the beginning was baby led weaning. Now you like if you have an infant feed, whatever method feels most resonating and that you feel the less anxious about. But I just was so drawn to baby led weaning. I also love feeding littles is like the biggest resource on it. They practice and teach intuitive eating as well. So we just, I connected with that information because they share often about how like it's a form of like teaching intuitive eating from the beginning because they feed themselves. So they're in charge of how much they eat, what they're putting into their mouths, learning how to eat, learning different foods from the get-go. So I just was always fascinated by that. And that's what we did from the early on. It's interesting. I think if someone from the outside looking in was just like observing Maddie's eating, they would probably be like, she's a healthy eater. And I'm saying this in quotations because I don't like to like define food that way, but she is like, I mean, she has sweet potatoes and tomatoes and blueberries as part of her lunch today. I mean, she eats a wide variety of food. She eats a ton of fruits and vegetables. My sister's always like, she eats more vegetables than I think my husband and I do combined. But she also eats ice cream and pizza and cake, and I've never, ever made anything off limits. So an example of gentle nutrition, I'd say for the whole family is like, we just don't drink sodas. I just don't enjoy them. It's just not something we really have in the house. But when we're out or like we're with her family that uh, you know some of her family does, I never tell her she's not allowed to have it. And if they offer it to her, I don't even... I'm just like, cool, no problem at all. So I think it's just, again, coming back to that word flexibility is flexibility because I know that health is about like the sum of our behaviors over a long period of time. It's not small day-to-day stuff we need to sweat. So if someone gives her Sprite, I'm not worried about it. Or she has you know, more ice cream than she did the rest of her dinner. I'm not worried about it because I know she's getting overall what she needs. And because we're not making foods good and bad or making certain things on or off limits, she really is already establishing I mean, I know she's she's young. I still have a ways to go as a parent, but you can already just see just she just is very calm and centered around food and has you can tell she has a lot of fun with it and that she's also like it's just pretty obvious that she's exposed to a lot of different foods. Like we give her sushi, we give her these delicious meatballs we made last night for dinner. I'm not sure order cook, so she eats whatever we eat. Uh, but at the same time, like it's just such a variety and she's not only exposed to a small amount of foods and it's not controlled and she can't have this food or she can have this food. The last thing I'll say is I love Ellen Satter's 
division of responsibility. She shares that like the parents are in charge of what they're given and the children are in charge of what they eat. And I've always kind of kept that in the back of my mind of like, okay, like, yes, I'm deciding what goes on her plate until she's of age where she can do that. But she's in charge of what she eats. So I never like force her to finish her plate. That actually like really teaches from a very young age to distract from your hunger and fullness. So I would encouraged to not do that as hard as that can be to waste food. I know that's really hard. I compost, so I feel a little bit better about that. But um, uh, we don't force her to finish her plate. Again, she's in charge of how much of it she consumes. Toddlers, man, they eat two bites sometimes. And sometimes she asks for extra helpings. It's so variant. And I think it's so fascinating how different it can be depending on the meal and day. Mm -hmm. Can I ask you a follow-up question? Of course. For selfish reasons. And I apologize if this is so complicated. But so you mentioned like the soda example, which I love. We're also not soda drinkers. Um, and that's not really a thing. And you said that, you know, when she goes over to other people's house, like it's not off limits. What if she comes home and she's like, I want that drink I had at Uncle Bob's house. Like, can we buy it? And she sees it at the grocery store and like begs for it. Like, what is the approach to that? Because the reason why I ask is because a lot of my partners, um, and actually even my family, a lot of our family are like kind of our age, but with kids already. And I just see so many different things come up at the dinner table. And sometimes I'm like, "Mm, I wouldn't have approached it like that. And other times I'm like, I don't even know how I would have approached it. We have family members and they'll have children that are like age 9, 10, 11, 12. And sometimes you see their plate is literally packed with cake. And it feels like if you don't say, hey, that's enough cake, then they'll just eat all the cake. And I know that that from what we know, that's not necessarily true. But I see the parents like getting really worried about it and sometimes approaching it effectively. And other times I cringe inside, but yeah. Do you have any like thoughts on, on that? Like, yeah, again, I'm being selfish here and I'm sorry to put you on the spot. (laughs) (laughs) You're not being selfish. Um, and I will also just say like, I, I, I'll figure it out when I get there. Right. Like I, I'm going to presume what I would do, but I will also say like, who knows, maybe I'll change my mind when I get there. And I feel like what's coming to mind as you're asking me, this is like, I imagine maybe I would do a little bit of both. Like, I don't think I would get all new foods and like completely buy a completely different grocery list than how we typically eat. But I also don't think I would be so strict to not have any flexibility with what I purchase. So I can even think of like right now, like, I don't love mac and cheese. God, you guys don't hate me. My husband does, but I just don't. I mean, it's like, I like it, but it's not like my thing. (laughs) I'd rather have pizza or I don't know anything like sushi. I just love sushi so much. (laughs) Anyways, that's a side note. Um, We have mac and cheese in the house all the time now because Maddie likes mac and cheese. So like there have been some things that have changed. Uh, We have more goldfish in our house than we used to. But at the same time, I don't know that I would change like everything about what we buy. So I'd imagine be a little bit of both or maybe just, you know, occasionally buying it, but not making it an all the time thing too. I hope by not making it off limits, I'll even say in my personal experience as a child, my mother was so, she cared so deeply about health. And I understand that, but at the same time, everything was off limits. So even those tendencies towards disordered eating existed as a child where we weren't allowed to have those things in our house. So when I would go to a friend's house, I would go crazy and eat all the M&Ms and all the soda. So just knowing my own personal story, I don't think I would approach it from that personal way of like, we're never allowed to have that kind of stuff. Again, I think it might be a little bit of both would be how I envision I would approach it. I love that. No, that's a great answer. It's just a little bit of both. And you're right. I have, I had the same experience with my upbringing that I went to friends' houses and would literally binge at friends' houses and then 
like hide the wrappers in the trash. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And the parents would talk to my mom about it. And like, they just, I don't think any of them, no one had the language back then of diet culture or like, this is displaying disorder behaviors or like, Hey, like you can care about your daughter eating healthy, but like, don't make everything off limits. But yeah, I mean, they were doing the best they could with the knowledge they had at the time. But yeah, I just don't know that I would approach it from like a super strict way because while we don't, always have that kind of food on hand. I don't want to be an always or nothing type household, right? I want to have flexibility in both both ways. Yeah. Oh, Maddie is so, so lucky. I'm just thinking about like, <laughs> as you know, the non-diet world and the body positivity world gets more and more popular. Hopefully we'll all be parents to future generations of intuitive eaters and body acceptors and just <laughs> make the world like a better place. So yeah, you're contributing to that in both personal and big ways. So thank you. Thank you for those kind words. That means a lot. (laughs) I love this conversation. I cannot wait for our listeners to hear this because it's just something that's so real, like orthorexia, so real, so under talked about. And I'm glad we got to dive into it today. Thank you so much for your time. But before we farewell, is there anything I didn't ask you that you wish I did? Or anything you want to add? Um, No, I mean, I think you did such a wonderful job of touching a bunch of different areas. So I feel like we covered a ton of base. And yeah, I don't think I have anything other than like, I hope you guys enjoy the conversation. Hope you learned a little bit about orthorexia. And if you want to learn how to practice wellness without obsession, we'd love to come and hang out with our community too. Where can we find you? So we have a few different places you can hang out with us. So the first and my favorite is the Nourishing Women podcast. If you love Mary's podcast, you'll love ours. We touch on intuitive eating. We talk about body image, perfectionism, stress management. But we also talk a lot about some scientific stuff. We talk about IBS. We'll talk a lot about HA and PCOS. So we try to hit a bunch of different type of conversations. Anything related to any person who identifies as a woman, anything that they would be interested in learning about. Then we have two Instagram accounts. My personal one is at Victoria Myers underscore. And then our main practice account is at Nourishing Minds Nutrition. And then the practice account is Nourishing Minds Nutrition. We work with clients in a one-on-one setting, as I mentioned, in virtual counseling. And then we also have online programs. So we have one that's centered around helping women get their period back from HA. And then another one that's going to help you make peace with food and body. So you can find out all about that if you come hang out with us. Ah. Yay. I love that. I'll link all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much, Victoria. It was wonderful. Thank you so much for having me on, Mary. This was truly a pleasure. One last thing before we farewell. If you've been enjoying the Mary's Cup of Tea podcast, we would greatly appreciate if you could leave a short review on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts. Your feedback helps the show so, so much. I absolutely love hearing from you. And as somebody whose love language is words of affirmation, your words mean the world to me. Just go to the Apple Podcasts app and scroll all the way down until you see the review section. And from there, you can just tap the star thing and leave your own review. Thank you so much for supporting me and this greater message of self-love for all. Also, feel free to send this episode to a friend and spread the gift of self-love. And speaking of the gift of self-love, make sure you pick up my book, which is available in stores and online worldwide. Just head to maryscupoftea.com book, and you'll find all the links to give yourself the gift of self-love. I love you all so, so much, and I will talk to you next time. Mwah.